Hello and welcome to a temporarily paroled episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be reviewing part three of our Hilda Dion trilogy with 1982's 48 Hours. We'll jump into five-point inspection with Blueprints, introducing Eddie Murphy, Slurometer, Practical Magic, and The Man at the Top of the Hill. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Hey, man, uh, do you want to do the Zoom interview in, in your office or what? Uh, you're going to wear a T-shirt for the interview? What interview? Uh, with the bank? You know, I thought I'd class myself up a little bit with the suit. What do you think? <laughs> I think class isn't something you buy. I mean, look at you. You've got a $500 suit and you still look like a lowlife. Well, I like it. Uh, and I'd like our odds of getting the loan a lot more if you at least put on like a polo or something. Uh, the bank, yeah, don't worry about that. They called a, a little while ago and they approved us. Wait, are you serious? How how in the hell did that happen? I talked to men already. I told you, most things can be handled with a little bullshit and some experience. Wait, what did you tell them? A whole lot of bullshit, but we got the loan. While you're here, though, are you still trying to get some trim tomorrow night? Uh, I mean, I've got a date, yeah. The generosity of women never ceased to amaze me. But look, do me a favor, can you not use the company card again? <laughs> I mean, what, what card are you talking about, Jack? I can read a credit card statement, shithead, and don't call me Jack. Uh, what the hell are you complaining for? At least nobody's calling you a shithead or a lowlife. I may call you worse than that, but nothing like 40 hours, though, which we're reviewing next. of homicides, including the death of a fellow cop, leads Detective Jack Cates to release a small-time crook for 48 hours. Reggie Hammond only has a few months left of his sentence, but the threat of a previous partner getting away with his stash of cash is incentive enough to team up with the hard-headed Cates. Can the two put their differences aside and stay focused long enough to settle the score, or is Gantz and his team going to get away with it all? Alrighty, Travis, before we jump into five-point inspection, I'd love to know your quick diagnostic of Walter Hill's 1982's 48 Hours. <laughs> well, look, I, I have to lead with, you know, the loosely defined buddy cop genre. Uh, one of my favorite genres of movies, um, chief among them probably being the works of Shane Black, the Lethal Weapon series, especially the first, Long mm -hmm. Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the other guys. Uh, I've always heard that 48 Hours, because I have not seen this movie prior to the review, I've always heard that 48 Hours kind of pioneered this genre. Uh, so mm -hmm. I was very excited to watch it. I'll leave out the rampant racism and sexism <laughs> in this movie for just a moment. Yeah. Even, even removing that, there's not much to this movie. I'm not saying that it's bad, but you can definitely tell that this was kind of the prototype that other movies built upon probably more successfully. Um, but what did you think? That was kind of what I had to do, too, is at going into it kind of blind like you were. The beginning was definitely like a, a little rough for me. And then as I kind of put, you know, the mindset on like, OK, this is definitely kind of like the blueprint for the modern buddy cop movie. Like you start to realize like, 
what was working, what wasn't working, what people realized and kind of built off of. So once I kind of put that hat on, I, I enjoyed it a lot more. I also enjoyed it a lot more when Eddie Murphy showed up on screen. I think he he definitely saves this movie as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it and is oddly, just, it took him a while to show up. Yeah, I think it was... It's an hour and a half long movie, and I think it was like 25 minutes into the movie is what I clocked it at before Eddie Murphy shows up at all. And I'm like, wow, you're a third of the movie in before you have. But again, it's having to go back and and think about this. At the time it was released, Eddie Murphy was not a hot commodity at that. This is his first film. Like, this is his film debut. So at that point, like, his name might have been on the poster, but that wasn't necessarily like you're using his name to pull it in Um, and doing a, a tiny bit of research on it. The film was originally designed for Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor, which makes sense because as I was watching it, all I could think of about Jack Cates, the detective, is I'm like, this just feels like a really like Bobo version of Dirty Harry. Like they took the worst parts of Dirty Harry and then tried to put him into what is now considered the buddy cop genre. And that's essentially after finding out they tried to uh, cast Clint Eastwood, I'm like, oh, that's exactly what they did. They just tried to make a dirty hairy buddy cop movie yeah down to the the setting the location of san francisco which is also where dirty harry takes place so yeah the intent was was pretty clear just by the setting that that eastwood was the a number one choice for jack cates yeah and apparently he turned it down because at this point in his career he didn't want to play cops anymore he actually wanted to play criminals he wanted to you know turn heel so that's why he ultimately turned it down then i guess there were a lot of other people that kind of their hat was in it at at some point, but ultimately it wound up with Nick Nolte and uh, and Eddie Murphy, uh, which I thought their chemistry was good. Once it actually started, they actually started getting into it. It, it was. I will say this: towards the beginning of the movie, I think at the exact moment is when you have the bank robbery that go. Or yeah, I think it's the the bank robbery that goes wrong. Is it a bank robbery? Or is it just the when Nick Nolte shows up with the other detectives and they they find the dance for the first? It's a hotel, hotel. That's what yeah, it is. no, they, yeah, they the hotel just shootout. staked it out. Yeah, <laughs> when Nick Nolte he says something like "get down" or "get" or like "call the cops" or "call for back." He says something like, "I'm like, oh my god, Nick Nolte is just the straight man's Chris Farley." Like, it's just Chris Farley is just the comedic version of Nick Nolte. Like, his his cadence and the way he screams, like, all I could think of for the rest of the movie was like, oh, my God, like, this is, if you put Chris Farley, like, you get, like, a really ridiculous buddy cop version of this movie if you were to, to replace Nick Nolte with Chris Farley. It's interesting you say that. It makes me have to question, how familiar are you with Nick Nolte's other work? I've seen, I mean... Obviously, the Incredible Hulk, but um, <laughs> my son. Well, for clarification, Brett, that's just Hulk. Okay, that's not. The oh, sorry, Incredible that's Hulk. Hulk. I apologize. Right. I apologize. I'm 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 scrambling the MCU and pre MCU. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm familiar with his work. Just in this movie alone, he just it, like he even his look to me is like you could have easily made like the like the modern comedy version of this where it would just be over the top. Like the Will Ferrell version would have had Chris Farley as Detective Jack Cates, where it just would have been over the top, like ridiculousness. Well, the only thing I'll say, just in case anyone's listening who is like a fan of Nick Nolte's work, this is just Nick Nolte. Uh, You can say (laughs) that it's Chris Farley. If anything, Chris Farley might have been doing a Nick Nolte impersonation because... (laughs) Uh, I'm a fan of Nick Nolte. He's an enjoyable presence, but 
Yeah, I'm thinking of a movie called Blue Chips, which is a basketball movie, but he is basically just Jack Cates playing a basketball coach in that movie. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if you are calling out the performance, this is just Nick Nolte's yeah. standard performance, at least in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and so there, I, I, I stand by my claims that Nick Nolte is the straight man's Chris Farley, all right? <laughs> Put that you on heard Instagram, it here first. Brett. Put that on Instagram. <laughs> uh, but uh, with that, I think we can go ahead and, and you know start doing some of our five point inspection here because I think we've kind of teased a couple of them already. So uh, especially with blueprints, I think that's the best place to to go ahead and start with this. Like I said, we've we've definitely already gone into some of what I had in terms of my notes for this. But essentially, was as we've said, like this was a, basically the blueprint for what is the modern buddy cop genre. Um, I did think that Jack Cates as the renegade cop was a little over the top. And I think in, in some of the more modern things, they'll take it a little bit back. Cause like when he's beating up on who's the, who's the guy who goes and gets the car, um, Luther, when he's beating the absolute shit out of Luther, I'm like, he's a, he's a little over the top, even for the renegade cop. And like, I get Eddie Murphy, like Reggie not doing anything. Like he's a crook. He doesn't give a shit, but I'm like, Nick Nolte is the renegade cause like he really is like completely unhinged and that goes back to me saying like I feel like they just took the worst parts of Dirty Harry and then multiplied it by 10 with all of the racial slurs and just how overly aggressive he is to everything. Well, yeah, and you want to talk about this being a blueprint for the modern, you know, buddy cop movie to me inherent in that formula, the A1 most important thing you can do is have great chemistry between your leads. I, I think mm. 100% that's the biggest reason Lethal Weapon took off is because Gibson and Glover, they just, it's almost like music the way they interact with each other. Mm. It's interesting to contrast that with this because I thought early in the movie there was not a lot of chemistry between the two and I was trying to decipher whether that was intentional or uh, with a little bit of research, what I found out was Eddie Murphy, in the first couple of weeks of shooting, really struggled because, I mean, he was definitely famous at this point, but only for SNL. Mm -hmm. And doing SNL, I think, is, is different than shooting a feature. I think you touched on this when we did the producers, you know, Mel Brooks having to adjust his style going from stage to screen. I think mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy very much had to adjust his style going from the SNL stage to screen. Um, as the movie goes on, I think the chemistry gets better. It makes me wonder if chronologically we're seeing the improvements in Eddie Murphy's ability to do, you know, multiple takes. Hey, redo that line multiple times, mm -hmm. kind of like we did in our opening. Um, <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. That'll definitely be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Eddie Murphy seemed green. Uh, but by the end of the movie, you can tell why his star was just on the rise. Absolutely. And it's one of those like, it, and to your point, like, you know, films typically are not shot chronologically. And I, I don't know, you know, in, in 82 when they did it, but I do feel like the prison scene was definitely the first, the first take with Eddie. Like there's, he gets so much better in the movie, like where he just, you know, I did kind of laugh as he's, he's, you know, belting out Roxanne, you know, you don't have to turn on the red light, but when he's screaming back at Nick Nolte in the, in the prison, like you can tell that he's, he is struggling like he doesn't quite get it and this is that was the pinnacle moment when i was like because i didn't realize this was his first movie that's when i looked at it i'm like oh this is his first movie this makes sense why he has not quite he you know become the actor that he is today 
Yeah, and I've even heard that there was a little bit of frustration on set with his inability to kind of adjust to the rhythms of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. So again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it feels like the disdain that that Cates has for Reggie Hammond at the beginning might be (laughs) half reality. Yeah, half, you know, what's in the script. Um, But yeah, I I have no way to verify that, but it kind of comes through on screen a little bit. Yeah. So as we talk about their chemistry, I think it's a, a nice transition into Slurometer. Because uh, this movie, I think that was the, the hardest part for me to get into. Is you realize movies are made differently today. And I'm not saying you don't have movies with slurs and, and racial tension and stuff like that. But typically, like, it's it's almost, they do it artistically. Whereas this movie just, just does it. And going back to Walter Hill... You know, his whole thing is, you know, everything's a Western. That's his favorite genre. Even his contemporary stuff, he basically films it in, in the, the the vein of a Western where it's kind of a lawless, you know, society type thing where everything goes and you see the bleakness of, of people. But good Lord, do they decide to go over the top with, with the slurs? Because I'm like, at one point, like, I'm not, the N-word is said multiple times. Eddie Murphy's and, referred and, to. And let me just say, it's the hard R version. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is it is the most derogatory version you could possibly have with it. And it is it is made with that intent. Call Eddie Murphy is called that. <laughs> Even by his black captain or the black captain of the police force. He that was so him, like, goddamn <laughs> random. I could I was, I was like, like, what, what is fuck? going on? <laughs> um Nick Nolte, I believe, refers to him as a blacks, like a derogatory term, a watermelon and a spear chucker at some point. It calls him charcoal. Calls him charcoal. Um, so it's just like holy like they just there was no stopping it when when they wind up i did because of how over the top that was i did appreciate when eddie murphy got to go into the redneck bar and basically just tear into the you know the 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 good old confederate boys and all that like that was a very enjoyable after watching him get berated racially that he got to go in there and basically return the favor and i was like okay i can at least there's a balance here where he got to do the other side of it um (laughs) what was i have some more but i want to give you a chance to, to kind of talk about kind of how over the top the slurs are in this movie well i Let me just say, in the history of this podcast, I can't remember a time where you have texted me live watching the movie. Um, Shout out to Chris Reeves. I was literally at Chris Reeves going away dinner, uh, eating some chicken wings when I got a a text from you that I believe just said, holy shit, this movie. (laughs) And... I didn't even have to ask you what you were referring to. I kind of knew... Uh-huh. Uh, and, and to your point, I, watching the movie, literally the prison breakout scene when Billy Bear shows up to break out James Remar's character, the police guard, which side note, I don't know why there's only two guards guarding like 30 convicts, but literally when Billy got Bear shotguns, pulled, man. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> a, a, a low range weapon. Yeah. So if anybody runs away, you can shoot them from at least 10 feet. Yeah, you're good. That that has maybe three shells each before you have to to reload. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, they literally are like, I wonder what reservation they let him off of. And I'm like, wow. I I even paused the movie just to see where we were. It was it was three and a half minutes in. And this was the early 80s where a lot of the opening was just credits and music. Uh So, yeah, 
literally probably the first line of dialogue is racist and buckle in because that's going to be the whole ride. Yeah, they they do that. Um then like the next opening shot with Gantz and and his Billy Bear is he's ordering prostitutes and he's <laughs> And I, this line, I have to assume it has to be intentional. And I'm almost thinking it's it's to try and, and show how kind of like racially insensitive people can be. Because he goes, yeah, I need another girl uh, for, and I need an Indian for my Indian friend. And then he goes, no, not a turban. And I think he says, I forget what he follows up. But I'm just like, OK, so they made the point that they, they added they added a line to this movie that there is a difference that is a racial slur for more than one one race. And then no. But then it follows up later you find the Indian prostitute, right? She shows up at the hotel, and it is a Spanish-American actress who is dressed up in a beaded bikini is how they reveal that it's an Indian prostitute. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, this is just like the 80s were just it's caricatures of things like it's just racist caricatures. I'm like, why did she have to be in the scene, period? We just knew that he got a prostitute. Why did it have to like again? She's just wearing like it is like the Indian princess from Peter Pan. Like, it's just like, it's over the top caricatures of what, like, oh, she's Indian. Therefore she has a beaded bikini. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Living in San Francisco. Yeah. It's not, Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. I did not even notice that. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I I didn't realize that the, the heights that this movie went to, to just be incredibly racially insensitive. And, you know, towards women, I think we can, we can save some of the sexism for, for the Walter here, Walter Hill segment, but just a brief note, this whole movie gets kicked off with Luther's girlfriend getting, you know, kidnapped by Billy Bear and uh, Gantz. Do you know what actually happens to her by the end of the movie? Nah, no. I have no idea whether she's alive, she's dead, she's she's okay. I, she just kind no of just drops by the wayside, much like mm-hmm. Jack Kate's girlfriend. <laughs> that whole thing, I'm like, there has to be scenes that were at least written or filmed because I'm like, it, there's no resolution between Jack and his girlfriend whatsoever, other than she's pissed off. I'm like, I was expecting something to come back or like that would be a thing like Reggie would give Jack like tips or pointers on a relationship. No, that never comes back up or anything. Yeah, and it's weird too because I don't know how big a star she was at the time this was filmed, but his girlfriend was a netto tool, which is a pretty well-respected actress. I mean, she's got a strong, long career. And in this movie, the last scene is just Jack Cates hanging up on her and her just kind of being at the other end of the phone like, all right, well, that was my final scene of the movie. Bye. I'll tell you where her career's at right now, and that's being part of the Netflix canceled series Virgin River, which she is a annoying fucking character in. It's a terrible series, and I only watch it to make fun of it. Um, Is this the one with Martin Henderson? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we've talked about it before on this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah she's, she's in that. She plays a real fucking annoying character in that series. <laughs> but yeah, you're talking about even, you know, 35, 40 years later, she's still working, which mm-hmm. has to be attributed to her talent. And yet in this movie, she is just the damsel I, I can't on the phone. See- yeah, I can't even say that she's a tool for anything. Like, where, like, they used her as a vehicle for, like, she literally is just like, it's just to show that Jack's in a relationship, and I guess that he's kind of a hard-ass with everybody, you know? It goes back to that really, the Bobo Dirty Harry, like, oh, he's offensive to everybody. It's like, oh, I don't know if we needed the girlfriend who kind of hates him, that he, he he keeps trying to make things right while at the same time making no effort to make things right with. Like, it's just, it's so weird. 
Yeah, and maybe we can touch on this in the Eddie Murphy segment, but that's another thing. I don't feel like these characters go through any sort of growth. Um, and, and, you know, while we're on Slurrometer, let me just go ahead and bring up, because if we're talking about how characters change, I found it really weird that at one point, it might be after Cates and Hammond have their fight, and Cates is just like, hey, you know, I know I've been calling you racial slurs the whole movie, but, you know, I'm just <laughs> using the tools of I'm just using that to and- keep you down. Yeah, yeah, I just, I'm just, I don't really mean that. I'm just using that to keep you down. And that's why he, when he's at the, the, the black bar, that, that he says that. And I'm like, okay, well, and that was the point where I'm like, okay, so is this just like, they're trying to show that all of this is inexcusable. You shouldn't be doing this. And this is just a, a result of society. Cause I'm like, up until that point, I'm like, I just don't understand why they've gone so over the top with this. And then I'm like, okay, is this like almost a throwaway line where it's like, oh no, we realize that this is wrong. But it's just supposed to show just, again, that Western, you know, lawlessness, you know, just the, the rawness of society. Yeah, and, and look, I will say, I mean, to your point in the bar scene, Kate's he does try to help Hammond. It's not like he's leading him in there to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wants him to prove himself. But then when the guy tries to get away, Kate's tries to help him. But. Like you said, I, I'm trying to tell if that was a theme that Walter Hill was going for with this movie. Like, hey, you know, Cates is only acting this way because that's how society makes him act. But deep down that he doesn't feel this way. But to your point, if that's the case, you maybe could have cut the amount of racial slurs that Cates utters by maybe a third. Because or, or it, even- it's kind of like that verbally abusive, you know, person in your life where ultimately they're like, hey, I'm just trying to make you better. It's like, yeah, but 90% of the time you're just an asshole. Like the, the, the 10% doesn't necessarily make up for it. Right. And I would think if that's what you're trying to go with, then Gant's relationship with Billy Bear, he wouldn't have just referred to him as the Indian over and over and over again. Right. Because then Gantz and Billy Bear had a mutual respect. They were partners. They were the ones going back and killing people like they were they were in it together. But even Gantz, I don't know if he ever refers to Billy Bear as Billy or Billy Bear. It's He's always just the Indian, you know? I'm going to make the Indian do this. I'm like, I just feel like, I again, if your whole thought is like, again, people only do this because they're expected to, you would think that Gantz would have a little bit more respect for his partner because he's not being forced to be that shitty. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about the contrast of the t- the two partners in this movie, or I guess the you know, the four people making up two partnerships. Um, But yeah, again, I don't know if that was stuff that was just thrown in at the last minute. Like, hey, you know, the studio, you know, going back to uh, the player, you know, maybe there was a test screening and they're like, hey, it's nothing but racial slurs. Maybe we should reshoot one scene where we just pay some lip service to what we're trying to do. But Mm -hmm. if that was the theme, to me, it didn't land. Yeah. And I know it's part of the buddy cop genre and all that, but it does feel very abrupt where between, you know, Nick Nolte's character, Jack, just being a total, you know, hard ass on Reggie and then going to like, you know, man, I, I want to be honest with you while we're in this environment. Like, I'm, I'm not I'm not being real when I say that stuff. Like, I, I actually really respect you and all that. I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, keep you in line because that's how I've been taught to teach you, you know, to, to keep you in line. It's very strange that how quick that, you know suddenly they're on mutual ground happens. So did you want to dive into introducing Eddie Murphy? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, as this happens with our five-point inspections, you know, we've definitely talked a little bit about what I want to go in here, but just definitely you can tell why this movie made Eddie Mar Murphy a movie star because we talked about how he's very green at the beginning, but by the end of the movie, like, I absolutely love Eddie Murphy in this movie, especially for it being his first performance where it's like, to me, he makes the movie. And yes, Nick Nolte's character, like, the con I always think back to the contrast. You know, we're talking about Buddy Cop. To me, this is very much like Men in Black, which is one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time. The original one where you have the straight man, Tommy Lee Jones, and then the comedic partner with Will Smith, RJ, you know? To me, Men in Black is very much a better, much better version of 48 Hours because it is still that same play where Nick Nolte, he's not supposed to be funny, but there's moments that he's funny because of the co-star. Like, they put themselves in situations where you'll laugh at kind of Nick Nolte or what he does. So, um... Yeah, just Eddie Murphy was just sensational in this movie. By by the end of it, like I I wanted more and more of him. I can understand why they made Beverly Hills Cop, why he kind of continued to be cast. Because yeah, by the end of it, like you're just like yeah, Eddie Murphy's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I I will always wonder, and I don't think I've ever heard a a clear, concise answer as to why you know somewhere in the the early to mid '90s, Eddie Murphy just decided. I'm done taking any chances. I'm just going to cash family friendly checks. But yeah, it's hard. If you're somebody who's listening to this and you're, you know, in your, your early to mid twenties, Eddie Murphy is probably just like daddy daycare to you or, you know, the haunted mansion. It's hard to really sell what kind of star he was once 48 hours came out, which rolled into Beverly Hills cop. Um, yeah, you just it, it's rare that you can see somebody in their on-screen debut and just be like that person is going to demand and earn, you know, 10 million dollars a picture mm -hmm. and and be instant box office gold. Um So yeah. I mean Eddie Murphy Eddie Murphy for the longest time I think was the highest grossing actor of all time like if you if you calculated how much he'd made he was i think the highest grossing actor of all time for for a very long time i don't know if that's changed but he he was he is to, to put this in modern terms eddie murphy in the 80s and 90s is what the rock is today like you put dwayne the rock johnson in something it's an instant smash like you're you're going to make your money off of that hit I no, I, I think that's a that's a disservice to Eddie Murphy. I, I get the comparison you're trying to make. I don't think there's a one to one comparison with Eddie Murphy because even The Rock, he's had plenty of flops. And yeah, he's he's kind of what you inject into a franchise to get a little more life out of it. Eddie Murphy was the franchise like yeah. he he willed three Beverly Hills cops into existence because I mean, you look at what he's working with in those movies. Judge Reinhold is, is the second lead in those movies. <laughs> yeah. It, which again, it just baffles me that Eddie Murphy didn't have like a second gear to go into. Like he, he crushed the eighties. He was, he crushed the early nineties. And then it just feels like he gave up, which is, is weird because you just see so much promise on screen you know, right away. And as we said, he was completely green. He walked off the set of SNL and became a superstar. Yeah. Uh, the list has changed drastically. Eddie Murphy is still on it, but he's not at the top. We'll just go through it real quick just because we're talking about it. The highest grossing actors of all time 
in the United States and Canada as of February 2021. So we're still we're missing a year here. Number one is Samuel L. Jackson, followed by Robert Downey Jr., Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Bradley Cooper, Harrison Ford, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, uh, Zoe Saldana, Chris Pratt, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, and then Eddie Murphy. So a lot of, of course, the MCU shit has come in and, and completely wiped out any anything that happened in the 80s, 90s, and even early 2000 because those Marvel movies just make ungodly amounts of money and therefore those actors get paid ungodly amounts of money to do them. I mean, hell, Samuel L. Jackson, he is from the 80s and 90s and is in the MCU, so... And in Star Wars. So he really and, is yeah. is double dipping there, which is because uh, mm. at first I was like Samuel L. Jackson. But then I'm like, that's Mace Windu and that's Nick Fury. There's you just wait because you you know they're going to retcon Mace Windu's death. You know, there's going to be you, you mark my words in the next five years. Mace Windu is going to show up in a Star Wars show post Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, where it's, yeah. Once yeah. you, yeah, once you made the caveat of it could be a, a Disney Plus show, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. They will play that card before it's all said and done. Yep. So, uh, but yeah, I don't have much more to talk about. I mean, just other than the fact that you know this is his debut film, it just it absolutely it's off to a little bit of a, a rocky start there, but definitely comes into his own, and, and you realize why people wanted to latch on to that and be like, no, we're we're he's going to be a star. You know, he he's going to make the transition from SNL and stand up comedy to being a a megastar. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. Again, if you didn't if you didn't see this movie back in the day, which I mean, I guess neither of us did. But again, you could just tell. Yeah, that's a that's a rising star. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do we uh, have left? So we've got Practical Magic and the Man at the Top of the Hill, which I think we should save that for the end. So yeah, what do you want to do with Practical Magic? Yeah, I just want to be very brief because I found myself more and more, mostly due to this podcast, but anytime I watch older movies, I'm talking 80s or 90s, it just blows me away to watch Jack Cates driving his shitty Cadillac through the streets of San Francisco. And mm -hmm. there's no doubt that it's San Francisco. You've got those those steep hills with the bay in the background. Um I just miss practical location shooting, uh, especially in the United States. I feel like everything now is is built upon, hey, we can get a tax credit to shoot in, you know, Atlanta or we can get a tax mm -hmm. credit to shoot in Canada. And that will be the setting for whatever movie we're making. It doesn't matter if it's supposed to be a Miami movie or uh, a Dallas, Texas movie. You're either going to have Canada or Atlanta subbing in for them. Because yeah, it, it makes... Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. It just makes all of the shots are close shots. Like you, because I'm thinking uh, the first shot that I really remember is when they're walking through Chinatown for the first time and it's a long shot and it's just them walking the street and slowly pans down. And like, I think the lanterns are out of focus, but they're still like in the front of the shot. And like, it's a beautiful shot and it's very long. Like, it's not a, like you're watching them dialogue and talk as they're walking through Chinatown. Like yeah, I thought the same thing, like you never see this in, in modern movies where you get a shot like this. Yeah. And I'm just watching you know, extras in the background. And I don't even, I wonder if they were even extras. There's, there's so much background stuff that just feels like, Hey, we closed off this particular section, but anything beyond that, that's in the, the, the way back of the, of the scene, those are just people walking around. It just, it just, 
again, I'm going to go ahead and, and take a shot. I, I'm going to say it feels lived in. The world mm-hmm. feels lived in. Again, the streets of San Francisco. It's a small touch, but then later in the movie, um, I'm thinking in the uh, that like the alley chase where there's mm. all the smoke and the neon love signs. Love the alley chase. I love that. It wouldn't surprise me if you told me that that was shot on a soundstage, but the movie does enough setup where we're all in practical locations that my mind doesn't even for a second think, oh, this is just a set. So I watched that scene. I was like, oh, I wonder if this influenced Blade Runner or if Blade Runner influenced this. They were shot in the same year. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't the same set. <laughs> that, was the, what, that would not surprise me at all. If it's like they borrowed each other's sets for that because it felt very much like walking through the streets of, of Blade Runner. I'm glad you said that because I had that thought. And I guess I didn't realize how old 48 Hours was because I didn't even think that, yeah, maybe that's just a set that was was used twice and both incredibly effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I even when Nick Nolte shoots Gantz at the end, like his whole demeanor is fantastic to me where he's just like he's stone cold, like he's done. He's caught his guy and he's going to make sure he he takes him down. Yeah, I was just bluffing, man. Mm hmm. But yeah, I think that's a lost art in movies. And again, I know, you know, from the financial sense, I know why it's necessary. But it it just goes to show if you can film 20% of your production in real locations, you know, with real background, it helps the suspension of disbelief later on, even if you're just going to go to purely green screen. Like, some of the Marvel shit, everything just looks the same. It's that kind of that gray, uh, you know, muddied image to kind of cover up for the special effects a little bit. And mm-hmm. everything you can just tell eight feet behind the actor, it's just a green screen. No, no matter how good it looks, you know you're not actually in reality. So I, I just miss this style of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And all of the extras, like they're acting too. So everything is perfect. Like there's no flaws in any of the actions. I, I, I totally agree. It's just, it's a shame because... To your point, it does not feel lived in. They they feel like they feel like video games is exactly what they feel like. Everything is designed exactly the way it needs to be. If you were to go and do that 20 times, you'll get the exact same result, all 20 shots. Like there's no organicness to it whatsoever. Yeah, I guess my last note, not particular to this movie, but the subject we're talking about. At this point, if you're shooting in Vancouver, just call it Vancouver. I I, I don't care. Don't don't try to pretend like it's another city. Just use the setting that you're in and Mm -hmm. put that in the plot. That way we can at least hope for some practical shots. So (laughs) that's that's what I'll say. Uh, uh, What's the Miami mob doing in Vancouver? Does it matter? Does it matter? Doesn't. Vancouver looks great, though. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Predator 2. You know, we've got we've got Haitians and Jamaicans and it's it's, you know, some suburb of New York, whatever. Alrighty, let's go ahead and round out Five Point Inspection with the man at the top of the hill. So with this trilogy, uh, just to recap, we did uh, the Hill to Die on trilogy. We chose an actor, a writer, and a director with the last name Hill. Uh, Part one was super bad with Jonah Hill as the actor. Part two was Horns with Joe Hill as the writer. And then part three, we went with Walter Hill, who was the director of this. So, um, you know, just in keeping with the theme, this is just where we wanted to kind of talk about the the director, what he did here, maybe part of his his career, and just 
kind of any notes we had about just the direction of this movie. So Travis, I'll let you take it from the top. Uh, yeah. So if you look at Walter Hill's filmography, I think you mentioned it earlier. He's everything's kind of in the Western vein. I think he's even admitted that whenever he makes a film, he's looking to either make it a Western or have Western themes. And that's fine. As a result, though, I think if you're a woman, uh, there's there's not a Walter Hill film that you're going to enjoy because women in his movies just they only exist to be like like you said in this movie it's just to prove that Jack Cates is in a relationship or again in this movie it's what Luther's motivation is to to give the money back uh, to Gantz and Billy Bear they're either going to be a hostage or you know somebody in the background who is kind of getting shortchanged by the man that they're in a relationship with. And you can look at his filmography. It, it's macho Western, wall to wall. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the man who did Red Heat starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, you know, he did do another 48 Hours. Uh, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Again, everything is, you know, bullet to the head. Sylvester Stallone. He's a very macho, masculine director for better and worse. Well, what's interesting, too, is I totally agree with all that. What is interesting, though, if you look at his producing credits, he has produced movie, a movie that has one of the all-time greatest female heroes, which is Alien. Yeah, but I wondered, though. He's a I producer. Think- I'm not saying. I'm just saying it's interesting that I he is the Macho Western, but he does have an attachment to one of the greatest female heroines of all time. Just as a producer, but it's still interesting that he did. And I think he he was involved with the Alien franchise up until Aliens 3. But it is interesting that he what is attached to that project regardless of I'm not sure how much influence he had over it. Yeah, and I think you know, even before we reviewed The Player, a producing credit can be uh, very malleable as far as what your actual input is on it. Um, it is interesting to think that he was a producer on on those films, which created, you know, Ellen Ripley, which to me is a top five action hero of all time. Uh, but it doesn't feel like that really carried out into any of his directorial mm-hmm. filmography. So that's why I just have to assume that's a little bit more. He was probably more involved in the action and the violence element if he had any sort of hand in the pot. <laughs> Yeah, uh, rather than the characterization of it. Yeah, I I would. I mean, Ridley Scott definitely was would did all of that. But again, just trying to. It's interesting to see how Hollywood is is woven. You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. But uh, beyond that, yeah, I just in terms of just his directing with this movie, I you know I I definitely we talked about it with the the cinematography. Like it's. Some of those long drawn shots are are very great and gorgeous. Uh, I in, in looking up some research with him, I know that I guess a lot of him kind of falling out and stopping and not making movies anymore. Is, you know, he loves the the action adventure genre, and I guess he started getting a little dislike. He, he was he didn't enjoy where the genre was going, where it was kind of this cartoon action. Where I guess he made the the statement that you know a lot of people considered some of his movies unrealistic and. But he always thought, you know, bullets hurt people, you know, and, and stuff like that. And then it got to the point where, like, almost everything's a superhero. Everybody's invincible. You know, you have got a guy with a machine gun run, 
being shot at across a room and uh, nothing hits him. You know, he, he seems invincible. So it's interesting to see how he kind of started off in this. People seem to think his action was unrealistic. And then he ultimately left Hollywood because by his own regards, like his stuff would be considered incredibly realistic by today's standards. Yeah, which is funny because you look at the action of 48 hours, it is well shot, but it, you know, it feels grounded compared to the action that we got, you know, probably post Michael Bay, you know, mm-hmm. going forward. And like you said, now action, you know, eight times out of 10 is going to be superhero related. Yeah, it was fun. I'm pretty sure maybe I missed it, but I'm pretty sure that when Reggie shoots Billy Bear, I'm pretty sure he shoots the gun once, but he has two bullet holes. in his chest. And I was like, that seems like a pretty easy thing to fix. Well, like just <laughs> I had forgotten about this. I'm glad you mentioned it. But in the the early hotel shootout, which if, you know, Walter Hill is not going to write a, a 3D female character. So we're kind of relying on him for the, the masculinity and the action piece. In that hotel shootout, multiple people are firing revolvers, which at most would have six shots. And Brent, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, maybe this created the trope of you never have to reload. But uh, they're shooting these revolvers 10, 15 times without reloading. And I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? And then later in the movie, oddly enough, Kate's is pinned down and has to reload the gun. And I'm like, where was this logic in the first action scene of the movie? Because there were 94 shots fired between three revolvers. Well, also, Gantz, he winds up with with Kate's gun. It's a revolver. Like, where did he get the additional bullets? Because he shot that thing a lot after getting it. Like, where does he get more ammo through the movie? It seems like that would have been a cool thing if Gantz just kind of ran out at some point. Yeah, you know, Gantz and his disheveled, like, cut-off sweater just went to the ammo store and, and purchased some rounds. Like, hey, you know, this is this police issue, but uh, I need some rounds for it. Sweater? You mean his 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 tweed uh, vet or tank top? His sweater tank top? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sweater tank top. The first sweater tank top I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm buying one. I, I I have a couple ordered on Amazon. Actually, I think they're pretty fashionable. You know, especially in Florida here. You know, you you want to stay warm, but you got to keep with the Florida aesthetic with that tank. Sun's so. out, guns out. <laughs> uh, alrighty. Well, if you have nothing else to talk about. Uh, with the man at the top of the hill. I think we can go ahead and get into some chop shop. What do you think? Let's do it. Alrighty, so this week I believe I got family friendly and you got horror. Yes. Yeah. Couple couple of just terrible categories for this, if I do say so, so myself. Here's my thing though, Travis. If I if there's ever a movie where I'm like, fuck, I don't know what I do, I would always want horror. Because anything's pretty like to make a generic shitty horror, it's not hard to turn something into a slasher or something like that. Like if you want to get into into do some of the ghost stuff, like yeah, it's going to be a little bit more complex. But like, if there's one genre where I'm like, it just if this is, I don't want to deal with this. Horror is typically the one where like I feel like <laughs> I would default. I don't know about you, but that's the one I would default to. Is like, give me horror and I can make this work somehow. 
Yeah, I think my problem is whenever I think horror, I want to introduce supernatural elements. But ultimately, you're right, because this week I realized that I just here's the thing. We can get into Chop Shop, and I think this will apply to both of us. The movie 48 Hours as it stands, if you just look at the actual plot, the plot is razor thin. Because ultimately, yeah. Reggie could have just said, hey, the money's in this parking garage. Let's wait till Monday morning. And it would just be, hey, get Reggie out of prison. Let's drive to this location and let's just park the car and wait. Also, why was the parking? I'm pretty sure it was a 24 hour parking garage. I don't understand why they had to wait until Monday morning to get the car. Like, I'm very like, I can't even imagine that's a good business model. If you're like, oh, you can park your car here, but you can't get it on the weekends. Yeah, no, that's fuck. I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, I can understand certain businesses having hours of operation. If it's literally just a place you park your car, eh, you know, swipe a card, lift a gate, go in and get it. So, yeah. Or it didn't seem like there was a lot of night security. You could have just take if you had the keys to the car. I'm sure there wasn't that many cars to go just find the trunk to open and take the case. Like I don't, especially when so we find out that it's a classic Porsche convertible. It's like it's not yeah. going to be hard to pick that out. <laughs> I just yeah, there was so much. Where I'm like I don't. As soon as they they wound up at a parking garage, I was like, why did why did we have to wait till Monday for this? Yeah, so the reason I bring that up is I don't know if it's going to affect your chop shop. It affects my chop shop because when the movie that you're chopping up has, it's kind of like making a sandwich with two pieces of bread and just a single slice of ham and maybe you get a, <laughs> a, a half piece of cheese. It's like there's only so many ways that you can mix up those ingredients to do anything. Mm -hmm. So my chop shop is pretty bare bones. I don't know about yours. Um, mine's fun. Mine's fun. I think, okay. I think you're going to enjoy mine. All right. I think I should go first then. Okay. Okay. All right. So My, mine has a twist that I don't think you'll see coming. Wait, and this is family friendly. You did. It's, I got, it's a family friendly twist. So it's, wait, you're, it's a family friendly movie, but there's a mystery and there's a twist. There's, there's definitely a mystery. There's a twist and there might be an animal. God damn. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to follow that up, so I'm going to go first. Um, so what I tried to do is I tried to write at least one brief kind of introduction that could be horror. Um, mm -hmm. And then everything else will be a little bit yada, yada, yada. Uh, maybe with like a, a landing and an ending that could also be considered horror. So uh, my movie... My horror version of 48 Hours is going to open up on a rainy night in the San Francisco suburbs. A seven-year-old boy is using a flashlight underneath the covers, reading a comic book. He's taking extra caution, you know, so that his parents in the next room don't know that he's, he's staying up well past his bedtime. Uh, the boy is sleeping with the window open and enjoying the sounds of rain. And as he's reading his comic, he hears a, a tearing sound coming from his window. The boy removes his head from the covers, shining his flashlight towards the window, seeing nothing. Uh, the boy returns under the covers to resume his comic book, but after a few moments, he hears the sound again. The boy's starting to get scared now, so he waits a beat, 
building up the courage to look out from the covers again. And as he pulls the blanket back, a flash of lightning illuminates the room, revealing Billy Bear standing menacingly over the child. Billy grabs the child and we cut. Oh, wow. We're putting child abduction into this movie? Uh, yeah. I mean, hey, I wow. killed the Grinch's dog, Brett. Anything. Son of a bitch. Anything it's, is possible in true. my chop shops. What comic book was he reading? Just, just out of curiosity. The Toxic Avenger. Oh, okay. All right. The next morning, uh, Jack Cates is driving around in his beat-up Cadillac when he gets a call on the police radio. Uh, it turns out that the father of the kidnapped child is an old war buddy of Jack Cates. Uh, the buddy got mixed up in some white-collar crime, uh, and he had Gantz take the fall. So basically, this guy's a respectable businessman, but he's kind of relying on underworld seediness to kind of do his bidding. Uh, okay. You know, steal some money. I didn't get into the specifics of that, but you can kind of get the overview. He screwed it's not necessary Gantz in horror. Yeah, in a horror movie, that's it's, it's just fluff. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, he calls in Jack because obviously they're old friends. And, you know, he's asking for Kate's help in locating his son. But he's not exactly forthcoming about, you know, his shady dealings. And much like in this film, Kate's is kind of going to go off uh, off script, off of uh, standard police work and kind of forge he's some paperwork. He's a renegade. Renegade. Uh, that was my Nick Nolte. Uh, renegade. <laughs> Not bad. Way better than your Christopher Walken. <laughs> uh, I strongly disagree. I'm, I'm not going to do the impression again, though. Listen listen to last week if you want to. Uh, but yeah, he's going to spring Reggie from the prison because he is going to have been, again, ex-cellmates with uh, Gans. Um, but again, to try to put a little more horror spin on this... Kind of like in True Detective, um, he's going to share a cell with him and Gantz is going to be on kind of like the, the prison made, you know, drugs that kind of slowly drive him even more and more crazy. So we're going to mm -hmm. really hammer home that Gates, Gantz was a, a psychopath going into prison, but his time in prison didn't make him any saner. Got it. Um so yeah, this is where I get into the yada yada because I wanted to do horror. I wanted to do child abduction, but there's no real reason for Gans and Billy Bear to abduct any more children because the only reason they abducted this child is well, because unless they're, they're, they're abducting all. Of, what if they're abducting the children of all of their like ex partners? Like, and if you want to go into like the occult stuff, like to sacrifice them or something like that. So now they're they're going after mold. Like all of them have kids, and they're going after all of their next to kin. Ooh, see, I like that because that that could stretch out the middle of the movie, which is where I struggled because again, forty eight hours at the stands is just the money's in a parking garage. Let's go wait for it. So yeah, I, I like that. Maybe they were. All of the legitimate people that they were involved with, now they have hell to pay, mm -hmm. uh, you know, once Billy Bear breaks Gans out of prison. So I like that. And it even sets it up to where when they feel like you could have three or four of their partners, they figure it after the, the second one and they go to try and stop, like they've got to stop the third one, but they're just a, a second too late where they see Billy Bear taking the kid or something like that, where it's like, oh, they figured it out just a second too late. Ooh, I like that. And, and also from the detective perspective, they can 
kind of start putting the dots together. What do all these abducted children have in common? It can mm. lead back to some sort of shell company, you know, headed by a certain person and all these members are in the organization. So I like that. Um, but ultimately, I think we'll we'll fast forward to in 48 hours as it stands, it's the money exchange for the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in this particular case, it would be the money exchange for the kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't know if this moment landed for you in the movie. It didn't for me, but I think 48 Hours was trying to make a big time character statement when Reggie, instead of going over to the hotel to get laid, he decides, no, the case is more important. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah, I definitely think they were trying to. I didn't think it worked, but I, I saw what they were doing. Well, I, I think and it, the reason the reason for that is because the the reason he wanted it is because it was his money. Had it not been his money, I think it would have had more impact. But he he was directly impacted by like not going back and helping because he would lose his what half a million or whatever it was. True, true. Um, so yeah, in this particular scene, the the. The exchange is going to go a little bit wrong. The kid is still going to go back with his father. I, I want to, even even in this this chop shop, I don't like to have kids in danger. It's not it's not my thing. I'll, I'll kill a dog. Mm-hmm. I don't want to kill a kid. Uh, so the kid's going to get away uh, with his father. Um, but Billy Bear and Gans are also going to get away. And Kate's is going to kind of be okay with that hey we did our job we got the kid back and reggie's like no these people are dangerous they can't stay on the street reggie's gonna go after him uh so reggie's gonna be a little bit ahead kate's is gonna be like fuck well you know what this is my job i'm gonna go after him too and i'm thinking uh because we talked about the the blade runner quote-unquote scene with, with the fog in the alley i really like mm-hmm. that i thought that could work for a horror movie so they're gonna ch- they're gonna chase them into a similar alley with the fog, but it's gonna be like a homeless encampment. Like a lot of homeless people are gonna hang out here. So you're gonna have that that horror element of they're going through the crowd looking for these guys, uh, but you just never know who is who. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's there's trash cans with fire in them. There's fog. There's neon signs. So we're gonna have the climax of this film be. Hammond and Kate's pursuing Billy Bear and Gans through this homeless encampment. Uh, didn't really work out how it's going to end. Obviously, I think just like 48 Hours, you have to have our heroes win. But that's going to be the horror climax. Is is the tension of trying to find these people uh, with the danger coming at any moment. Any homeless person can turn around in a hood and, and be Billy Bear and stab our heroes to death. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's where we're going to leave it. So, again, I I felt like this movie didn't give you much to work with. It sounds like you did a better job, but that's that's kind of the vibe I wanted to go for. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we go back to our children kidnapping, the motivation is, you know, maybe Gantz didn't realize that Reggie was helping. And once he did, he's going after Reggie's. Well, you don't realize that Reggie has a kid. And now he's going after Reggie's kid. That's good. That's good. Which it's funny. A lot of the stuff we're describing, I feel like, is later done in Lethal Weapon, because mm-hmm. Roger Murtaugh's daughter gets kidnapped. So, like we said earlier, this was kind of the uh, the prototype that gets approved upon later. Absolutely. No, I like it. I think it's it's solid. So, 
and I mean, trying to make a non-slasher or, you know, uh, what is it? Supernatural horror film. So it's not the easiest thing. So I, I appreciate it. Still keeping it pretty grounded in reality, just like Walter Hill would like. But all that being said, let's get to the main event. I, I, I want to hear what you did. I, I can see that devilish smile you got too. Audience, you can't. Right. But. So most of my chop shops wind up being a struggle until I have a, a Dr. House-like epiphany and then all of a sudden it clicks and I'm able to just fucking run with it, right? So it's like, God, what am I going to do? Like I have to turn this racially, racially charged, um, what is it? a buddy cop movie into a family friendly thing. So the first thing I did was take out all of the racially charged language. Cause obviously a family friendly movie is not going to find a lot of that. in it, even if it was in the eighties, uh, the next thing I did was like, well, I don't exactly know how we're going to make the relationship, uh, with the cop needing to bust a criminal out in a family friendly movie. So ultimately what I did, uh, well, first off I swapped the roles. Eddie Murphy is going to be playing the role of Jack Cates the disgruntled renegade cop and Nick Nolte will be the incarcerated character who is actually a dog. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. So Reggie Hammond is a cop now. No, no, no. Reggie Hammond is Reggie is still, is still incarcerated. All right. Jack Cates is still the cop, but Eddie Murphy is playing Jack Cates. And you'll understand why. I, I apologize. I just need to make sure I understand this. Eddie Murphy is playing Jack Cates. Yes, Eddie Murphy is the cop. So who is playing, Reggie he's Hammond? Playing, Reggie Hammond. Let me just get it. Okay, we'll get into the chops. I feel like it'll be like, you know, I'm trying to, to, to put, build the suspense so there's a big surprise okay, here. I apologize. Just, I apologize. All right. Okay. No, it's, it's my, the delivery hasn't been quite there. You're, you're, so, okay. So, the, so Nick Nolte is going to be the voice of Reggie the dog. All right. So here's what we're going to get into. The movie opens with Gantz escaping prison. Obviously, because this is a friendly, friendly movie, he won't be a murderer, um, but maybe he's still stolen money or jewels or, or something like that. You know, some generic like he's 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 a crook, right? He winds up getting away uh, and that opens up our first look into Jack Cates and his girlfriend, Elaine. Jack Cates, again, is being played by Eddie Murphy now. Eddie Murphy definitely has the range. So Eddie Murphy is still that kind of disgruntled cop. Not racially like charged or anything like that, but like he's worn down. He's kind of like he's he, he's not very uh, open with his relationships. Like he's just kind of, you know, again, this this very uh, hermited kind of cop, right? Detective. So it's Jack Cates, played by Eddie Murphy, and his girlfriend Elaine. The two are fighting with each other over breakfast about how Jack never makes any time for her. And even when he's there, he seems distant. Jack talks about how he doesn't want to bring home his work and that it's a tough world out there. As he's trying to explain all this to Elaine, uh, Jack gets a call and finds out that his fellow detective, Algren, has been attacked and is in the hospital. Again, because I'm not sure how, what... I know in the 80s, even then, like I'm not sure what the gun policy is on family-friendly stuff, so I, I tried to keep a lot of that kind of stuff behind the scenes. Um, uh, rushes to the hospital. Um, so Jack rushes to the hospital um, to find Algren awake. The two talk, and Algren reveals that it was Gantz, a crook that the two put behind bars a few years ago. He escaped, and he's looking for his money. Indoor jewels or whatever the fuck it is, right? Jack remembers that Gantz had a dog, 
right? And he find that, and he thinks that the dog will remit, like, will will be able to help him find where Gantz's hideout is, right? Uh, because a dog has the sniff, can sniff them out and stuff like so, that. So like, he'll give a, a pair of Gantz's underwear and be like, "Oh, exactly." Find him. You know, okay. or maybe you know, if they'll be driving around and the dog will act crazy about something, and he'll be like, "Oh, that's that's where you know." Gantz, Gantz hides out there. So Jack remembers Gantz has a dog and he finds out it's at the pound and has yet to been, be adopted or picked up. So hoping that the dog, Reggie, can lead him to his hideout, Jack goes and picks him up. Now here's the thing. Jack attests dogs and children, right? Which he mentions in a monologue as he's picking up the dog. Um, the dog is overly affectionate. It's just a very happy dog, right? So it count, it's just a buddy cop, right? It's the odd couple situation. So the dog is overly affectionate which again puts Jack in a bad mood as the two are driving. Yeah. Can I just ask, have you seen the Burt Reynolds film where he's a cop and his partner is a dog? I haven't seen that, but I Turner and Hooch. Okay. Is, uh, yeah, okay Tom Hanks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're, you're, you're good. Um, so uh, as the two are driving in his beat up convertible, the dog, Reggie, starts to act excited and wants to get out of the car. Now Jack's thinking this is it. He was a genius for getting the dog. So he stops, and the and the dog, um, he thinks he's finally had it, and the dog dog leads him to a strange like service tunnel, right? And as the two are entering the the service tunnel, a strange light appears and engulfs them. And there's a scene where you just kind of see their silhouettes before the light completely engulfs the screen, right? We see the 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 silhouette of Jack and Reggie, and they appear in the light. The next scene opens up with Jack awaking in first person outside the tunnel. We hear Jack's thoughts as he gets up, oddly close to the ground, maybe on his hands and knees. <laughs> He's talking to himself about the stupid dog leading him astray and how he needs to find it as he crawls over to a puddle near the mouth of the service tunnel. As he looks at the reflection, he's stunned to see that he's none other than the dog. <laughs> In a panic, he looks back to see his body laying on the ground behind him, and he realizes that he and Reggie have switched bodies. Travis, we are talking about a Freaky Friday buddy cop dog movie, all right? (laughs) Which is why we needed to switch, all right? Because I need Eddie Murphy. I didn't want Nick Nolte doing an Eddie Murphy impression. I thought Eddie Murphy would do better doing a Nick Nolte impression, right? Yeah, it'd be um, far less problematic, I agree. Right, so because now it's the happy dog that is going to be in Eddie Murphy's body the majority of the movie, Eddie Murphy gets to be his kind of fun, lively self. We still get the comedic because that was the problem. It's like, if Eddie Murphy was still Reggie, that meant that Nick Nolte as the crotchety old man was going to wind up having to play, like, really happy, which could be funny for us, but not for a family-friendly movie. I don't want to see Nick Nolte try and be a comedic genius, right? So this is that's why we had to switch the two. So Jack, as the dog, tries to wake himself up and keeps running back and forth, grabbing the sleeves of his body, trying to drag himself back into the tunnel to make the switch back before Reggie, as the cop, wakes up. To their surprise, they can actually communicate with each other. Because Reggie was a dog, he understands barking, and because he's now a human, he can talk, right? So the two decide that they have to go after Gantz, and then after that, they'll figure out how to switch themselves back. 
Uh, this is kind of the middle of the movie where we, we get into some generic stuff. Their search winds up taking them to various locations around San Francisco. Reggie tries to drive Jack's car, but the two decide to continue the investigation on foot slash public transportation after Reggie runs into some garbage cans against some comedic value for a family-friendly mo- movie. One night while getting food, on the first night while getting food, Reggie has to explain that Gantz might not be a great guy but he's the only one who ever looked out for him. So now Gantz kind of becomes a little bit of sympathetic. We a little bit of the understand the Stockholm syndrome as to why Reggie would still love Gantz and want to find him. Cause obviously he's, it's not about money anymore. Um, so he, but the only one who looked out for him. So Jack starts to understand that even people rough around the edges are capable of being loved, right? Cause maybe that's, what's been wrong with, with detective Jack this whole time. He, he wouldn't allow himself to be loved by Elaine. So while the two share the moment, Reggie gets a call and has to act like Jack talking to the police chief. Again, it allows some hijinks where, uh, you know, they now have to try and act like each other. The lead ends up being cold with the two returning to Jack's house. Uh, Elaine can tell something is strange with Jack, not only because he's brought home a dog, which he detests, um, but because he's acting particularly happy. That night, Jack lays with Elaine as the dog and Elaine now with her guard down is talking with the dog who she does not realize is actually Jack right so while she's talking uh she talks about how she loves Jack but she can't keep doing this Jack is a good man but he refuses to let anyone in and show any vulnerability and makes him miserable she talks about her own feelings of worthlessness because she can't seem to make him happy and maybe that they're better off alone Jack begins to break down, but he can't console Elaine because he realizes, you know, um, but he realizes that he has to change for both of them, right? So this is the the growth moment for Jack, where he's actually able to it, see it's not as shitty as you th- as ridiculous as you think. Um, no, and, uh, next- let me just say it works. I love <laughs> it. I'm also you just got to be very careful. That there's not some sort of, you know, peanut butter affection. Oh, no, yeah. not. Definitely not. No. <laughs> just... Reggie, Reggie is the cop wouldn't understand that. So <laughs> the next morning, uh, they get a possible lead on Gant's whereabouts. Reggie remembers a place that Gant's always used to talk about, but never took him. As he describes the place, Jack realizes it's another service tunnel, much like the one that they were switched in. The two take a bus and arrive just in time to find Gant's entering it. As Reggie calls out, Gantz takes us hostage and threatens uh, threatens them if they don't leave. The small fight breaks out and Gantz is about to shoot Jack as the dog when Reggie, as a human, jumps in front and takes the bullet. Jack jumps on Gantz, causing him to fall down, knocking his head, knocking him out. Jack rushes over to Reggie, who is holding his shoulder. The two have a heartfelt moment when suddenly the light from the tunnel flashes again. The two awaken as police sirens approach, approach, being in their original bodies. Gantz is arrested, and Jack is taken to the hospital. As he's loaded into the ambulance, a cop asks Jack what he wants to do with the dog. Jack looks back at Reggie, back in his body, as the doors close. We flash forward... We uh, and four weeks later, Jack and Elaine are having a pleasant breakfast. They seem to be working things out. Elaine asks Jack about kids, to which he replies, "He's not sure. He's still getting used to the dog." And right as he says that, Reggie jumps up on the table with his paws up on the table, uh, and the two just kind of like look at each other. Roll credits. I, I'm speechless. <laughs> um, I think. I'm going to talk about, you know, 
48 hours being a prototype. I think <laughs> you have made a prototype of with these chop shops, you can do anything. Get outside the box. I, I really, I really appreciate it. And somehow, somehow you made it heartfelt. Like yeah, the, it's I can absolutely see a early 90s family film with the body switch where you know the husband who is not doing right is in the body of the dog and finally gets the perspective of his wife because he's finally able to listen because mm-hmm. he doesn't have the ability to talk back. I God damn. <laughs> you could have gave me a million guesses as to what you were doing for family friendly, and I never would have come to that. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that's I couldn't even the reason I couldn't even start with the movies that kind of inspired it, because I'm like, if it, it's going to give away, and I can't give away the Freaky Friday moment because it's so ridiculous, but works so well, <laughs> well, in this situation. And I mean, I won't get into details, but one of the things I always hear is a Hollywood trope is, you know, oh, that performance was so brave. That script was so brave. Brett, that was a brave script. So <laughs> fucking well done. Well done. Uh, but could, I mean, a Nick Nolte is like an, like an old hunting dog or something like that, like a hound or something like that, or like one of those big great Danes. That's a perfect wait, wait, voice. Wait, wait, it's a perfect voice for that. Did he, didn't he, the fox and the hound, wasn't he... He was a voice uh, of one of those, wasn't he? Was he? Uh, hold on. Or was that Kurt Russell? Uh, I am not sure. <laughs> I'm going to type on, in I... Nick Nolte voice dog, Butch. Uh, as Butch in Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Glore. <laughs> not, not what I was thinking of. Nope, not what no, I was thinking of. It, it was Kurt Russell. My bad. My bad. Yeah, he was copper in the Fox and the Hound, but yep. I feel like you could you could put Nick Nolte in there. Well, well done, well done. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny because as I was I was writing the thing, uh, Kate, she's like, "Are you ever gonna get tired of these?" I'm like, "I don't know," because we've done like fifty about fifty of these, maybe a little over that. But I'm like, the thing is, you can always like. Even this one, like, I never would have thought I was going to go with a a dog. First, swapping out the dog with the criminal, and then doing a Freaky Friday. I'm like, there's always a way to, like, to just kind of, like, make these things weird. Because the whole point is just how interchangeable Hollywood is. So, like, you can always wind up doing something super weird, depending on what genre you want to jump into. So, like, it's it's just a fun exercise. I, I enjoy doing the chop shops. I hope everybody enjoys listening to them. <laughs> yeah, full disclosure, if you do enjoy listening to them, I mean... Right now, Brett is killing the game. You have inspired me. I need to think outside the box. Uh, There's no (laughs) limit on the ridiculousness because, again, Hollywood has produced some of the most ridiculous movies ever. Smash them together when you can, which is the whole point of this podcast. So, yeah. (laughs) Kate, if you're listening, I was getting tired of them, but your husband has creativity that I could only hope to achieve. So I, I'm going to next week and we'll, we'll maybe spoil that in our, our wrap up trilogy, what we're going to do for the next trilogy. But my goal is to do an animal body swap before this, <laughs> this is all said and done. <laughs> all righty. Let us, we, we got a couple segments left here. Let's go ahead and do blue book. 
Uh, so I'm going to give you the sticker price, the cost of this here movie. I need you to tell me what you think it grossed. I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's the same uh, worldwide in Canada in terms of the numbers I was able to find. So you're only looking for one number. It cost an estimated $12 million to make in 1982. What do you think it made at the box office? Uh, $37 million basically 79 million dollars whoa it was wow, it was okay. a huge success <laughs> like it was a box office smash for i believe it was paramount yeah i was kind of just because what i've heard is in order for a movie to be profitable it has to make three times its budget so i was trying to go slightly over that but holy mm -hmm. shit that's a smash it's weird to think that it took them about a decade to make a sequel, but I guess that's partly due to the fact that Beverly Hills Cop kind of mm -hmm. improved this formula. So Yeah. Yeah. And even when you think about how much it made, I'm like, when we talk about if this was the prototype for that genre, I mean, it had to have been very different for the time. So I would imagine it would have brought a lot of audience members in because they were seeing something very different. Yeah, true. And I mean, this doesn't spawn, you know, Lethal Weapon and, you know, basically Shane Black's entire career if it wasn't a smashing success. So. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we'll get into tag and title. All right. So here's the thing with tag and title this week. I... This is another one of those movies that had a book for a tagline, so I I abridged it um, for, for the purpose of this segment. I'll tell you what the whole thing is afterward, I'll, but if you're ready, what I need you to do, I'm going to give you three taglines. One tagline is the abridged version for this movie. One tagline is a tagline for a movie I found adjacent. And one is a tagline I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me what the abridged tagline for this movie is. Are you ready? Hit me. All right. Nice pair. They're not friends. They're barely partners. And they're running out of time. And the boys are back in town. Uh, the middle is the actual tagline okay the boys are back in town and and listen full disclosure i know it because not only the song in this movie but i did happen to see the poster for another 48 hours the boys are back in town is going to be for the sequel another 48 hours nice pair um i guess that means you had to have made it up you are completely wrong this week. You didn't get a single one. Bullshit. Bull the boys are back in town is another 48 hours. They reused it for 40, another 40 hours. The original tagline for this movie is, the boys are back in town. Nick Nolte is a cop. Eddie Murphy is a convict. They couldn't have liked each other less. They couldn't have needed each other more. And the last place they were expected to be is on the same side, even for 48 hours. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're telling me that the boys are back in town is not the tagline for another 48 hours. It, it might be, but it, it means that they reused it. Reused it from what? Uh, the boys are back in town was part of the original tagline for How? the first movie. They, 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 this so is there's the first a song. Time they there's met. a song. 
I, I agree. I, it doesn't make any sense. But there's be a back song in town if they never got to town the first time. This is their I first don't understand time in it town. either. But there is, I believe, in the movie at the at the the black bar. That's the song they sing. Is the boys and are back in yeah, town? Yeah, that's confirmed. And they wanted that to be a big single upon the release. Ow. So yes, the original tagline. This week, Brad. I feel the cheated. original tagline for Forty Eight Hours is. The boys are back in town. Nick Nolte is a cop. Eddie Murphy is a convict. They couldn't have liked each other less. They couldn't have needed each other more. And the last place they ever expected to be was on the same side, even for 48 hours. Terrible. Terrible. This movie was a blueprint for a lot. It was not a blueprint for taglines. That's terrible. The Australian... Tagline was when a tough cop has a cool convict as a partner and 48 hours to catch a killer, a lot of funny things can happen in 48 hours. That was the Australian tagline. So, wait, what is nice pair? What's that the tagline for? 2016's The Nice Guys, a Shane Black movie. Which means my tagline was. Which means I mentioned the goddamn movie that you referenced and I didn't get it. Yep. So the tagline I created was they're not friends, they're barely partners, and they're running out of time. <laughs> Again, that's a fantastic tagline. That feels like what they should have gone with. <laughs> yeah. Uh this week, bit of a doozy. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Uh, do you have a time capsule for us? I do, in fact. Um I think I I messaged you earlier in the week that I'm hoping this is not a continuing trend, but my time capsule this week is uh, another dead person. Um, oh, you got to do this to us. If I tell you the name Frank McRae, does that mean anything to you? That's not the guy from uh, Breaking Bad, is it? No, 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 no. I that's Jonathan Banks, which okay. that was that was going to be my second place because yeah, he's the cop that gets shot in the hotel because Kate's gives away his gun. Uh, I did like seeing him pop up. No, Frank McRae is the uh, the police chief who, for whatever reasons, decides to drop the end bomb at the end of the movie. Um, but he's kind of famous for playing this role, which is a a police authority figure who yells a lot. Um, <laughs> okay. Have you seen the film Last Action Hero uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yes. Okay. Here here comes the point in the podcast where I try to do an impersonation of someone. Uh, it's going to be rather loud, so fair warning. You know, turn your volume down. He is the police chief and last action hero who is constantly berating Arnold Schwarzenegger's Jack Slater. He also reprises his role as the yelling chief in another 48 hours. He also plays the yelling chief in National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1, uh, which is a spoof of all of these movies. Um, So it's one of those things where I saw all the parodies before I saw the role that inspired the parody. So as soon as he popped up, I'm like, wait, this is Jack Slater's police chief. And yeah, it was iconic enough that he got to reprise it uh, at least three more times. Wow. He might have been typecast a little bit because of this role. 
Yeah, and you know what? He's had a pretty strong filmography outside of it. He was in Rocky II. Um, he was in Hard Times. He was in Shaft in Africa. Um, he was a working actor up until his death, but he's definitely most iconic for being somebody's police boss who yells at them a lot. Um, All right. So yeah, it was just funny to see him show up in what inspired countless other roles. Yeah. Good to know. And uh, that's I'll what's also kind of... be sending you a supercut of him yelling, which I found on YouTube. <laughs> Good deal. All right. Uh, well, with that, let's go ahead and do final final opinions here. Uh, Travis, do you do you have any final words for you know the listeners who are listening? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> One goddamn mistake, Brett. Uh, yeah, so final thoughts. It, it's kind of going to echo what I said at the beginning. It's fun to watch this movie because you can tell that it plants so many seeds that will, I mean, honestly lead to just 80s action in general. We didn't even mention it. James Horner is doing the score for this movie. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, he's got a prominent use of saxophone and steel <laughs> drums in this movie. Uh -huh. Yeah. And you can point to, uh, I think of the movie Commando uh, when it comes to steel drums. Red Heat uses a lot of steel drums. And then, of course, the saxophone is the definition of Lethal Weapon's soundtrack. So or just 80s, 80s action. You could have just said saxophone. True, true. Um, so there's just so many things seeds that are planted that that lead to what a lot of people love about 80s action and it kind of spawns from here so in that sense you have to appreciate it you know as an ancestor of what's to come on its own though especially if you've already seen all that other stuff to quote lethal weapon and this movie it's pretty goddamn thin um <laughs> if you're not instantly kind of vibing with Jack Cates and Reggie Hammond, their interaction. If that's not a 10 out of 10 for you, you're probably not going to love this movie. Um, that being said, it's something that I would, interestingly enough, I know one of the things we talk about, would you watch it on TBS or TNT on a Saturday afternoon? I'm wondering how, could how they you? would portray this movie <laughs> on TNT could or you? TBS. Yeah. What kind of dubbing goes into this movie? Uh, to make up for you some of the knucklehead. <laughs> this is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. I feel like that would be a lot of what we have. So you have to appreciate it because what it led to on its own, I would say probably for most people, just skip it and watch what it led to, specifically Lethal Weapon, specifically the works of Shane Black. Um, yeah, it, it, it's fine, uh, but, you know, the older relatives are, or I guess the younger relatives of this movie are, are a lot better. What mm -hmm. about you? Uh, that's where I'd fall into. There's plenty of things that have done this better because this was kind of the pioneer that did it first. If you're a cinephile and you just enjoy kind of movie history and stuff like that, I think you have to watch it because it does lay so much of the groundwork of this genre, the buddy cop genre. So... With that, I, I think it's, it's, I, you know, I didn't hate the movie. I thought it was enjoyable. It's definitely one of those, if I was in the mood for a buddy cop movie, 
it would not be even close to my top picks to go back and watch. If someone put it in, I wouldn't hate it. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely the end scene. The, the third act is really good. Really enjoyed Eddie Eddie Murphy's performance and stuff like that. So I, I think it's it's okay to watch. But to your point, if if you're just looking for a good buddy cop movie, I think there's just so much better out there that's built off of off of this that I would probably look for something else like, you know, the nice guys or something like that. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Uh, but it's it's kind of fun to go back and watch kind of where it all started. So that would be my final take. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Um, again, the nice guys. Um, I would say go out and watch it if you haven't seen it. Based upon the box office of that movie that I love, none of you saw it. So uh, yeah, I can't recommend that one enough. If uh, if you're listening to this and you kind of like generally what we're talking about, go watch the nice guys. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think that about concludes our episode here, which is also concludes our our hill to die on trilogy. So we'll be doing a wrap up here shortly. You know, make sure you you listen out for that if you like listening to those. Uh, do you want to go ahead and tease what our next trilogy is here? Uh, well, I think you brought it up. Um, we are the Hollywood Chop Shop. And yet we've done shockingly little pertaining to cars, vehicles, things of that nature. Um, so I believe that we're moving into a more, uh, I guess you would say automotive trilogy. Yeah. Uh, cars, automotive, I guess we'll figure out an, an official name for it, but we are going to be doing drive gone in 60 seconds and then ending it with vanishing point. And I believe you inverted the order in which we're going to do those movies, correct? I thought we were going to end with Vanishing Point. Wait, or I thought we were leading with, with Vanishing Point. I, I don't care. Didn't well, you say reverse chronological tune, tune order? In, tune in next week to find out which movie we start with. Is it going to be Drive <laughs> or Vanishing Point? <laughs> we can assure you the second movie will definitely be Gone in 60 Seconds, though. <laughs> yeah, I think I just realized what reverse chronological chronological order means so yeah just cut all this <laughs> shit out right <laughs> so all right well uh with that we love y'all hope you come back next week and uh it'll be a blast i don't fight fair brett a whole lot of bullshit and then we got the loan while you're here, though, uh, you still trying to get some trim tomorrow night? Uh, I mean, Let I've me redo that line. <laughs> I just <laughs> a whole lot of bullshit. But we got the loan. Hey, uh, while you're here, though, are you still trying to get some twin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, twins twim? would be nice. So anyway, for some twins. Uh... Uh, sorry, I lost my place with all the the rigmarole. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, pick it up. Can with... we do that again? Yeah, wh yeah, where do you want to pick it up? Okay, I'll just do my line again. Hey, wait, wait, which, I can which line, Brett? Oh, oh, oh the okay. credit card statement one. Okay, yeah. all right. What is your video doing? What are you talking about? You just like, you like why are you standing up? What are you doing? I'm just, I, my ass is numb.
Oh, okay. This, your video started, it looked like you were putting a baklava on, and then you just well, stood my up. Well, my head is also cold. I didn't want to take the headset off because then I wouldn't be able to hear you, but my head okay. is cold and my ass is numb. All right. No, we're good now. I just, I, well, okay. Hi, everybody. In that last blooper, you might have heard me refer to Travis's mask as a baklava which I'm well aware is actually a pastry, and what I meant to say was balaclava. So, uh, yeah, I just felt the need to clarify that. Yeah, I gotta turn my fucking heat up.